0: Welcome back. It is uh, still summer and, you know, a time when uh, families are vacationing and sure that includes the prime minister and his family, other political leaders. I mean, I, I don't begrudge the prime minister a vacation. I know that's been a source of some debate. You know, so long as uh, decisions are being made and the prime minister's in the loop on things going on, I don't think it's a big deal that the prime minister is spending some time with his family. There should be transparency uh, around all of that for sure. And Obviously, there was one vacation I can think of that got the prime minister into some uh, hot water with the ethics commissioner. But nonetheless, the principle is is fine. Spend some time with your family. Unwind a little bit. I, I think we'll be okay. To me, the more intriguing question is what follows this vacation? And we've seen in the past where, you know, the prime minister's vacations have been followed by some rather consequential decisions, not all of which have worked out. We're at an interesting crossroads here. The liberals are are staring at some record low poll numbers. You know, there's numerous uh, files, uh, policy files that are frankly just kind of a mess. And this week, it appears as though the liberal NDP agreement is, is fraying, may not last. But it does, beyond all of that, just kind of feel like a government somewhat adrift. So are we likely to see maybe a big reset coming out of this? Maybe some big new policy initiative, a cabinet shuffle. Or maybe the prime minister's even rethinking his own future. He's been the prime minister for seven years now. How much longer does he intend to stay in that job? Does he still have the fire in his belly uh, to stay in that job? Some intriguing questions, much of which uh, explored in the latest post uh, from our next guest, journalist and author Paul Wells. He's got his uh, Substack page at paulwells.substack.com. You can read his latest on the Trudeau Rescue Plan. And he joins us uh, on the line here this afternoon. Paul, great to have you with us here. Welcome to the program. Hi, Rob. Thanks for having me. Uh, we mentioned, and I mean, you, you detail in your piece, uh, what a mess things feel like right now for the liberals on the policy front, the polling front, just just all of it. How, how dire is, is Trudeau's situation at the moment, would you say?
1: Well, uh, it's pretty bad. Uh, the, the worst stretch of polling he ever had was uh, during the snc Lavalan controversy when he had... Uh, uh, pulled Jody Wilson-Raybould out of a senior cabinet post, put her into junior one, she quit in protest, and then she revealed all the pressure that she'd been under. That was the beginning of 2019, and he took a real hit in the polls. Yeah. Um, most of the polls I've seen suggest that his Liberal Party is now doing worse than it was during smc Uh even though there's not an immediate crisis to cause that. Um, and why? It's Well, because life is just a mess. Um, uh, worst inflation in 40 years. Uh, 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 chaos in our airports. Um, uh, the growing sentiment that government can't get anything done. Yeah. Uh, the the uh, weird mixed messaging over uh, COVID restrictions. A prime minister who won't let us get on trains or planes if we don't wear masks. But it's awful hard to find him wearing a mask when he gets on a plane or a train, um, it adds up. And, and so he, uh, he left for vacation um, in serious political trouble. And so that's why I'm less interested in complaining about the vacation than in trying to figure out what's going through his head while he's down there on a rainy beach in Costa Rica.
0: Right. And I I find that that equally fascinating. And and it may not just be how do I turn this around, but can I turn this around? Is there any point in trying to turn around? Do you believe that part of the consideration now, seven years into being prime minister, is, you know, do I still want to be the prime minister?
1: I mean, I've spoken to people who worked at senior levels in this government until recently. As a rule, people who are still working in this government don't spend a lot of time chatting with me (laughs) because I can be (laughs) critical. But... um, they don't, they don't get uh, the sense of drift. Uh, senior jobs at the Prime Minister's office have not been uh, filled. Uh, there's, there's no sense of what the plan is or even what the kind of philosophy behind the governing plan would be. Um, and, and, and they themselves are, have been asking themselves and each other and me, uh, does this guy still have five more years as prime minister in him. Like, does he govern until the next election and then for a while after that? Because um, prime ministers who are getting ready for five more years in power do stuff. Right. They uh, switch up their senior staff. His, his, his chief of staff, Katie Telford, is the second longest serving chief of staff in the history of the job. Normally, uh, under Harper, under Mulroney, um, uh, Under Paul Martin, the chief of staff would have been changed by now. Um, That's the sort of thing you do when you you need a new team for a new chapter in your time in office. And because he's not doing that, because nobody knows what he wants to be doing in government in 18 months, people are wondering whether he plans to be in government in 18 months. Liberals are wondering that. Mm -hmm. Or is he going to quit?
0: Well, I, I I would imagine that's... I mean, look, it's, it's obviously going to happen at some point. Uh, you know, I mean, maybe now is a good time. It it does seem like it's entirely his decision. This, this isn't like, you know, the kretschian and Martin dynamic where, you know, there's a force that's kind of pushing the, the incumbent out the door. I think he's still got a pretty firm grip on, on the party, doesn't he? Oh, yeah.
2: Um,
1: the The unity in the Liberal Party is without precedent in the... Nearly thirty years that I 've been covering federal politics, uh, people who aren't liberals are not <laughs> are not really interested in listening to what Justin Trudeau has to say, right. but people who are liberals there's just there is just no uh, interest in trying to push him out um, and uh, that 's even true among liberals who aren 't awfully fond of the guy who figure that he 's turned out to be shallow or indecisive or uh, have too many priorities you know. I mean, those, those criticisms are pretty frequent in the liberal party. But if you push it a little further and you say, so are you, is there a group that's gearing up to get rid of them? Are, would you be part of such a group? They, they're horrified. This is Justin Trudeau's choice.
0: In terms of what what he could do to turn things around, and, uh, I mean, it seems to me an election would be crazy. I I, I don't see that in the cards. Uh, The idea of a cabinet shuffle, I mean, it just feels right now like there's Christia Freeland and everybody else. So cabinet shuffle, who would really care at this point? Policy-wise, I I don't know if they've kind of maxed out a lot of the big uh, ideas already. But I don't know, where where do you see uh, a possible life preserver here? (laughs)
1: So in the piece that you're mentioning uh, on my newsletter, I, I, I gave a few ideas. The, the, one of the things is you need to show that you're aware. You need to show that you're noticing the world around you. Um, he's been governing um, for economic growth for as long as he's been prime minister, as most prime ministries do. But we're in a position of uh, – in a moment of inflation, which is, which is a reflection of an overheated economy – Uh, at a very preoccupying level so you should govern in a different way instead of trying to pick the uh, economy up instead of trying to make it grow faster you actually need to cool it down and you do that by running surpluses and the only way to do that is to cut spending by large numbers of billions of dollars and to increase taxes and um, typically governments are afraid of of doing that Um, uh, but He's got to make some big economic choices that suggest that he's aware of the context and that at least point in that direction. What I suggest is he should just drastically simplify his governing agenda. There's, there's dozens and dozens of programs out there that people are barely even aware of that, that get them no political pop. And if, he, and if he brought a list of these programs out and said, I'm shutting down these 20, 30 programs, Uh, they were conceived for a different time, we're in trouble now, we're going to stop. That would be a strong signal.
0: That goes against the brand, though, in a big way, though, doesn't it?
1: Yeah, but, you know, so what? (laughs) (laughs) Every family, I mean, I I think it would actually be politically canny. Like, it's, it's not only smart policy, but every family in Canada is having to postpone plans that they were making only last year. Uh, expansion on the house, or buying a first house, or uh, switching out that old uh, truck for uh, a newer vehicle, or something like that. And and, and suddenly they're having to say, look, it'd be, it's a nice to have, but it's not a need to have, or it's not something we can actually make, make work right now. Um, a government that started to do that, instead of seeming to believe, as this government always does, that it lives on clouds and that everything is possible, would be a government that didn't seem to be out to lunch.
0: Yeah, that would be a big change, and that would represent a, a pretty uh, significant shift in, in approach. Um, but, you know, as yep. you alluded to, look, I mean, he's often used these, these vacations in the past to, to sort of uh, think about all of this, to, to come back with uh, a, a big change in direction. So we, we should probably anticipate something, shouldn't we? Whether it's what you outlined, I guess time will tell, but we should expect something coming out of this, shouldn't we?
1: Yeah, I mean, the the, the the most famous case is, is his uh, vacation on the Yaga Khans Island at the end of 2016 yeah. uh, near the Bahamas that got him in all kinds of trouble with the ethics commissioner. He came back from that vacation, he made Christopher Freeland his foreign minister, which was his major response to Donald Trump getting elected president. Um, so even though he should not have gone there for that vacation, even though it was a, a horrible mess, he was actually thinking while he was down there. Um, and... Uh, I. I expect that the government is going to unveil some kind of new plans uh, soon. I worry that they've already done it. Earlier this week, they, um, uh, Melanie Jolie and uh, Marco Mendocino announced that they were going to ban the import of handguns using essentially some trickery with paperwork. Um, uh, I was I, I was wondering whether they would do something surprising, but it's it's. We have to be open to the possibility that they would do something completely unsurprising, like yet another uh, showy gun control measure of of questionable utility. Um, That would be the kind of thing that, you know, they, they might be rolling out even while he's still down in Costa Rica to try and change the channel.
0: Well, we'll, uh, we'll await uh, any, any further surprises or big decisions. As mentioned, your latest newsletter, much more, paulwells.substack.com. Paul, always a pleasure. Thanks so much for making some time for us here today.
1: Thank you, Rob.
0: All the best. Uh, that's uh, journalist and author Paul Wells. Uh, you can find his uh, latest newsletter, again, paulwells.substack.com, as he sort of explores what's maybe out there. If the prime minister is really interested in, in a change in direction, change in approach... Look, I I think Paul Wells kind of identifies, uh, you know, where where the liberals could fill a void here or at least, you know, better speak to the concerns that people have at the moment. But it just it doesn't feel like it fits the brand. I I think the building of the Trudeau brand has been very deliberate. And if it's between, you know, staying in office and and kind of erasing that brand or walking off into the sunset and still having that brand as part of the legacy, I think he would. Probably choose the latter, is my sense. Now, death is, I think, by definition, something that's final. I don't know if death is something that can be reversed. If we're reversing death, then maybe it wasn't death to begin with. But at what point is someone beyond saving? At what point is it too late to bring somebody back? Certainly over the years, there have been advances uh, in, in medical technology, uh, that maybe allow us to to save people that perhaps previously weren't savable. This new research involves pigs and, and a, a system known as Organ X, which could have some huge ramifications, you know, for healthcare itself and even you know the concept of of death. So this involves pigs, and obviously there's a lot of you know careful planning that goes in into this because you do get into some Uh, some bioethical, maybe gray areas. But researchers at Yale University say they were able to restore blood circulation and other cellular functions in pigs a full hour after the animals had died. Again, this is a system known as OrganX, which allows oxygen to be recirculated through the body, preserving cells in some organs after a cardiac arrest. Now, the leader of the study says, quote, these cells are functioning hours after they should not be. What this tells us is the demise of cells can be halted and their functionality restored in multiple vital organs even one hour after death. So look, these are not zombie pigs or some of the other sensationalist headlines you might have seen in the aftermath of this. But like I say, this is still some pretty significant research. Uh, so joining us up for some further thoughts on what this represents, where there might be some bioethical pitfalls in all of this. Very pleased to welcome the program here this afternoon. a renowned bioethicist, Dr. Arthur Kaplan, Professor of Bioethics at the Department of Population Health at NYU. Dr. Kaplan, great to have you with us here. Welcome to the program.
2: Hey, thanks for having me.
0: Uh so, you know, sensationalist headlines aside, uh your thoughts first of all on, on just what a, a milestone this potentially represents.
2: Yeah, so it's really impressive, exciting potentially somewhat disturbing what you've got think of the yale team as taking a pig that had definitely died it was dead for an hour they picked it up at a slaughterhouse and they basically used kind of an artificial blood that's an overly simple description but think of it that way with more chemicals added and got some cellular activity even muscle movement back in parts of the pig so that's remarkable I mean, I think people would have said, you're dead for an hour, you're not going to restore anything, no matter what you do in an animal, and yet, here we are. So it shows us, for one thing, that death is not an event. It doesn't just happen, bang, and you're dead. It's a process. You kind of peter out, and there still is some capability in ourselves, even when our brain shuts down, even when our heart stops, that life is sort of out. So what does that mean? Well, it may mean that if we get this artificial solution in place in some hospitals, maybe some people with big heart attacks could be saved in ways that they can't now if you could restart their heart using an infusion of this stuff. We're a long way from knowing if that would work yet. We've only done it on one pig. <laughs> but it opens the door perhaps to some rescues that weren't possible. It also, and this may seem a little strange, but it opens the door to more people being organ donors. Right now, if you died, let's say, uh, in a hospital bed, but you weren't on life support, they can't get your organs because they get damaged so quickly when your heart stops. But if they could inject this artificial fluid into you, preserve, say, your liver or your kidney then if you wanted to be an organ donor, whereas before you couldn't, now maybe you could. So it has potential there as well. Mm-hmm.
0: Right, and and I think that's that's all potentially very beneficial. Um, in terms of, you know, the, the ethics of this, and, and, you know, these researchers were obviously careful. In particular, you know, one aspect of this is that there were nerve blockers involved to make sure that the brains of these pigs were not mm-hmm. active, right, to make sure there was nothing painful, potentially, or distressful to these animals, even though, I mean, for all intents and purposes, they were dead. But what do you see as some of the the ethical questions that this all raises?
2: Well, look, it's, for some, it's going to say, are we really sure that someone's dead? And, you know, historically, death has always been something that doctors pronounce relative to the technology they have at the time so in the 17th century the way they knew you were dead was they put a cloth over your mouth and nose to see if you were breathing uh we got the stethoscope a later invention they'd listen see if your heart was beating when before they just put their ear on your chest and we know later than that we have machines that can measure brain activity the so-called eeg machines that we use now to determine death if it's flat We say you're dead. So now we have new technology, and that may mean that the line of when we say you're dead has to be, if you will, drawn a little bit differently. Maybe we say you're only dead if we can't reverse your heart if we have some of this uh, innovative chemistry available to put into you. One other ethical issue, I don't know how much this stuff is going to cost, I don't know how easy it would be to put it at every hospital, so it may be that it's only going to be available initially to try and slow death or reverse death in a few places. It wouldn't surprise me if this turned out to be pretty expensive, Mm -hmm. pretty difficult to do without a highly trained team. So you could say, well, if you died in rural Alberta in your home, there's nothing much we could do. This availability of this experiment doesn't change anything. But maybe X, if you died at a big medical center, academic center, maybe they could try it and see if anything could be reversed. I'm not surprised to hear that because, as I say, medicine is always technologically driven. The more we're able to change or do things, the more our definitions have to change.
0: Well, even the definition of death itself, as you su- suggest, it's on, on the one hand, it's subjective. You know, I mean, we, we can objectively measure when someone is dead, but it's also somewhat subjective or at least has been in our healthcare system. So does does this change kind of the goalposts even for, well, for what's know,
2: death? I, I think death makes us nervous. We don't want to be yeah. declared dead prematurely, right? And One of the great fears that many people have is that they'd be buried alive and somehow misdiagnosed. It gave us Edgar Allan Poe and a lot of his uh, horror stories, that whole idea. So we're afraid of being sent off too soon. At the same time, we have to remember death is partly a social and legal definition. It means We could remove your organs if you want to be an organ donor. You could do an autopsy. Your property is going to transfer. You're going to have a funeral. A bunch of things happen that doctors aren't expert at, that scientists aren't expert at, but society needs some lines and some boundaries to say, you know what, you can even shut off these machines now. Mm -hmm. So the two have to be done together. Part of this experiment is making us realize, well, maybe there's a little bit more resiliency in the body cells. We're not sure, again, about the brain yet, but it looks like maybe the heart or the liver or muscles might live longer if you got this solution into them, if you got this technology used on a body. But at the same time, we're still going to be able to decide in our legislatures and our laws and say, you know what? If you don't have that technology available, you're dead, and you can disconnect machines. Whereas if you do have it, maybe you try it, and if nothing happens, then you're dead. So it's always been a little bit of a custom, a convention. It's not just, oh, X, Y, and Z happened, you're dead.
0: Right. And the idea that death is undoable is is obviously something that would raise all kinds of questions, and and maybe by definition death isn't something that's... Undoable. Like the pigs in this study, uh, they were clinically dead, even though the cellular function, blood circulation had been restored. Mm-hmm. They weren't alive where they didn't undo death, did it?
2: Correct. So you got some activity in parts, groups of cells, some activity in some organs. But let's say you saw some activity in the, in the heart of that dead pig. Was it pumping normally? Would it do it for hours? Would it do it for days? Did it just do it, so to speak, a little bit of a feeble pump? I think it's more the latter. I think you're getting a little bit of function still there. As I said, we really peter out when we die. We're not really uh, just going all at once. So I'm not totally surprised at the results of the experiment. But at the same time, it's a reminder that uh, life You know, it's difficult to extinguish. Some of our cells are going to work. But if our brain is stopped and our heart can't beat anymore and our lungs won't support us anymore, that still is kind of the at least one bright line area where I think we can be pretty sure we're dead. Right, but again,
0: you know, the design of the study was deliberate to make sure there was no brain activity. If the next right. well, step is was to, to remove those nerve blockers,
2: <laughs> More than it was, you know, at some point, we'll have to try and scan the pig brain, see if there's any organized activity, even though uh, you may get a couple of cells firing up in the brain of a pig or a human that's been dead for an hour or a day. It doesn't mean that they're coming back to life hmm. It just means that some of the cells there can still retain some function. That's very different. Yeah, it would
0: be. And as you say, we're, we're maybe a long way off from, from this being applicable in humans, but that's, that's ultimately the goal here, right? I mean, uh, this is going to take some time. They're going through the proper steps. but
2: Right, right. So the research is being done carefully, and that's good, mm-hmm. by the way, for people who are concerned. They're trying to make sure that if they use pigs in the future, they would uh, treat them humanely, that they wouldn't suffer. They don't want any unnecessary suffering for the pig. So um, if they're going to cause a pig to die, give it a heart attack, they anesthetize it. They make sure there's nothing going on there. That's part of the reason we can't really measure the brain. Um, So they're trying to be careful, trying to be cautious. At the same time, I'll make this prediction. I think there are going to be more applications in the short run for allowing organ donation to occur by saving organs that would have gone bad than there are going to be uses to, so to speak, wake up the dead. I'm not convinced that the technique, as much as it sounds like something's going on in a body after death has come, I don't know that it's resurrection. I think it's just kind of firing up systems or parts.
0: We'll leave it there. Really fascinating stuff. Dr. Kaplan, appreciate the insight uh, as always. Thank you so much for making some time for us here today. Thank you. All the best. Uh, that is Dr. Kaplan, uh, Arthur Kaplan, that is, Professor of Bioethics at uh, NYU. His thoughts on what this represents, where there's you know, some, some maybe ethical questions or some guidelines to be established. I think, as he says, the most obvious and promising application is when it comes to organ donation and keeping organs viable for longer. And that would be huge, just in and of itself. Um, There's one weird aspect to the story, by the way. Uh, This is the New York Times article on on the study and the findings. It says, quote, There was one startling finding. The pigs treated with organ X jerked their heads when researchers injected an iodine contrast solution for imaging. The research emphasized, Well, the reason for the movement was not known. There was no indication of any involvement of the brain. That would have been... I don't know, kind of freaky, honestly. <laughs> if you're involved in the study. You, you know, the pigs are dead. And then they do that. So again, they use nerve blockers to ensure that there was no brain activity. And they say that some individual brain cells were alive. There was no indication of any organized global nerve activity in the brain. So that's where this kind of research can get into a weird area. Like, what if there was? What does that mean? What does that represent? Can you be dead while still having brain activity. Like, that seems to be a pretty important factor in assessing death. So that's where, okay, let's, let's better understand all of this. But still, what they were able to achieve was pretty remarkable. Pigs that have been dead for an hour, they were able then, through this organ X solution they've developed, to restore uh, blood circulation and uh, some cellular activity. So, yes, the obvious implication, huge for organ donation. Some of the broader questions about sort of stretching or redefining the definition of death. Well, that's maybe a part of the conversation in the long run as well. Welcome back. Under Canada's universal single-payer health care system, we don't pay out of pocket for health services. But that's not to say that we don't pay for health care. I mean, you know, we, we talk about health care as free. It's freely provided. You're not charged uh, for going to the doctor, being treated in hospital, surgery, et cetera. But obviously, all of that entails a cost. And given that we don't pay, Canadians probably really don't have an idea of what it costs to deliver health care in this country. You know, you can look at government budgets and see how much is dedicated toward health care. Are we getting value for our dollar? And how much are we paying as individuals for health care? I mean, the money that goes toward health care comes from us in the form of taxation. Is it possible to quantify what it is we pay for health care? And then from that, perhaps we can better judge the value we're getting for that price. There's a new study out uh, from the Fraser Institute looking at that exact question. What the price of public health care insurance actually is to Canadians. Obviously, that's going to vary depending on what you pay in taxes. But joining us to talk a bit more about it and why it's important to think about it in these terms, I'm pleased to welcome to the program here this afternoon, uh, Backus uh, Moreau, who is Director of Health Policy Studies at the Fraser Institute, FraserInstitute.org. Bacchus, great to have you with us here. Welcome to the
3: program. Thank you for having me on the show, Rob.
0: First of all, to that question of why it's important to think of the cost of healthcare system in these terms to better understand kind of what it is to the individual why do we need to think about it in those terms
3: you know i think for many years um canada's healthcare system was referred to as a free system and when when it's referred to as a free system we we tend to probably brush away a lot of its faults because we think at least you know it's free you know at some fundamental level we knew that we were paying into it but we didn't really know whether it was you know a couple of hundred dollars or a couple of thousand dollars And there's no way for us to try and assess whether our money is actually working and translating into good services. Um, And it's just really unfortunate because it is one of the largest expenses that we have in in our household finances and yet we just don't see it as a line item. Um, So one of the things that we just try and do every year is is a very, you know, straightforward study, no policy recommendations in it, uh, but just trying to help Canadians understand how much they're actually paying for healthcare through the country's tax system. Uh, And I think some of the results would, you know, probably surprise uh, some of the listeners. Um, We find that the average uh, family with, you know, two parents and two children um, are gonna be paying almost $16,000 for healthcare uh, this year, whereas the average individual will be spending about $5,000 for healthcare. And of course, as you mentioned, uh, things vary according to to incomes, Uh, but it's just important for us to just understand, you know, how much are we actually putting into the system So we can then start to have a conversation about, A, whether it's sustainable, B, are we actually getting good value for it, you know, and and just have a more informed discussion going forward.
0: Right, which I think is important, and people can disagree on on some of those questions, but at least starting from from that point, as you say. So explain in a little bit more detail, though, how you arrive at that number. How do you go about calculating this, this kind of a figure?
3: You know, it's it's actually a difficult process, and and it shouldn't be. Um, this is really something that sh- I, I think you know should be available to us uh, from governments. Uh, but uh, for us, what we do is we look at um, average incomes. Um, my co-authors and I use a, a software called um, SPSEM from Statistics Canada um, to simulate the average family and the different tax burdens that they that they face. Um, we have an estimation for um, the tax rates that these different families face. You know the interaction of all the different credits, um, and then we look at how much, uh, how much uh, healthcare uh, costs as a percentage of total revenues. Apply that percentage to different families, and that's how we get our different estimates. Where we can say, okay, well, you know, two parents and two children is about you know fifteen thousand eight hundred and forty-seven dollars. Uh, the typical one parent, one child family earning uh, $73,000 will be paying about $5,800 for health care and so on and so forth. So, like I said, a complex process that, you know, really should be at our fingertips because we are the ones paying it.
0: And as you say, that would vary depending on the income. But does it also vary from province to province when it comes to health care spending? And obviously tax rates vary from province to province, too.
3: It absolutely does very vary by province. Uh, we know that you know provinces like british columbia ontario and, and to a certain extent Quebec um, have lower health care spending um, and therefore will be devoting a lower share of their taxes towards health care, whereas provinces um, like the Atlantic provinces will be uh, a, a different situation and Alberta for many years um, was one of uh, one of the highest health care spenders, if not the highest health care spender in the country, but now that 's lowered in our particular report we haven't been able to segment it by uh, the different provinces there are different interactions with you know federal transfers and so on uh, but we are able to tell you know some of the differences based on income for example that the uh, the lowest 10% of income earners will be paying about 700 dollars for healthcare uh, this year uh, the the median uh, family 10% will be paying about 7000 and then the top percent of the top 10% of income earners will be paying about $42,000 for healthcare. And, you know, we can have long conversations about whether, um, you know, this is good, this is bad, this is a good value for money, but at the very least, we should really have this information um, available to us.
0: Well, and something also noted in this study is that if you go back over the last 25 years, you know, obviously that this was a lower figure then. Uh, when you compare the rate of increase to, to the figure then we would pay for healthcare and compare that to what we have to pay for other basic necessities, what, what do we see as, as the difference there then?
3: You know, unfortunately, we're seeing that over the last, you know, twenty twenty five years, going back to nineteen ninety seven, which is the first year that we could uh, we can do this analysis from, we can see that the amounts that the average family is paying for healthcare has increased far. In- um, much faster than than our average incomes, um, in particular, and I think that's that's probably the most important um, uh, metric, because we're seeing that the cost for uh, healthcare has increased about 1.8 times as fast as average incomes, and that's really important because it's telling us a little bit about the sustainability of the system. Because ultimately, our ability to finance healthcare depends on our incomes, and if it's outstripping our incomes, we're going to get into trouble going forward. Um, we also see that healthcare has grown faster than, um, uh, you know, 3.9 times as fast as the cost of clothing, 2.2 2 times as fast as food, uh, 1.8 times as fast as shelter. But it's really the income value that's telling us um, the story of what's been happening. I should say that the increases were far more dramatic uh, between about 1997 to, to, to 2012. Uh, and less dramatic between 2012 going forward, um, with the exception, of course, of, of the last two years. Um, but the overall trend has been that the cost of healthcare is outstripping our incomes, and you know that's that's something that we want to be be aware of.
0: Right, and as you say, it's kind of a you know a more subjective question as to whether we're getting value for that money. But I, I don't know that you'd find many Canadians who feel like healthcare has improved over the last 20 years. And certainly, what we're dealing with right now at the moment really feels like a, a system that's buckling.
3: Absolutely. And this, you know, this sets us up for those conversations, because when we look at things like wait times, you know, we do our annual report on on the average wait time across the country. When we find that the wait times um currently are 25.6 weeks, the longest wait times that we've ever seen in the history of the report since we've been doing it since 1993. Uh, I think it's 175 percent longer than in 1993. Um, it's certainly uh, longer than uh, physicians expect, um, uh, say that is clinically reasonable. Uh, and it's also longer than in other universal health care systems. When we compare ourselves to countries like um, Switzerland, France, New- uh, the Netherlands, Germany, um, all of them have universal health care. They're spending about the same as we do, uh, but they have much shorter wait times. They have uh, more physicians, more beds. Canada, meanwhile, is ranking in total amongst the top uh, spenders amongst universal health care countries but has one of the lowest, lowest ratios of physicians per population, one of the lowest ratios of bed, beds per population. We were kind of in the middle when it came to nurses, but now we're seeing uh, changes in that nurse population as well. Uh, and it really makes us question uh, where that money is actually going. But we can't really have that conversation until we first understand how much we're spending on healthcare, care. And that's why we do the study, just to you know, put that information in Canadians'
0: hands. Absolutely. Well, as mentioned, it's uh, online at FraserInstitute.org. Bacchus, we'll leave it there. Thanks so much for making some time for us here this afternoon. Appreciate it.
3: My pleasure. Thanks for having me, I'm All
0: sure. My uh, Barua is Director of Health Policy Studies at the Fraser Institute, uh, co-author of this report, you know, trying to, to pin down what is the cost of public health care insurance to Canadians. That number varies. They say... The average payment for public health care insurance ranges from $4,900 to just over $15,000 for six common Canadian family types, depending on the type of family and obviously depending on income. Uh, The 10% of Canadian families with the lowest incomes will pay an average of $690 for public health care insurance. 10% of families who earn an average of $76,000 will pay an average of $7,300 for public health insurance. And those in the top 10% of income earners pay a whopping $41,000 on average. Thanks for downloading and listening to the podcast. Don't forget to subscribe, rate, and review for free at Apple Podcasts, Google Play, or wherever you find your podcast. You can also find me on Twitter, at Rob Breckenridge. And you can email me, rob at 770chqr.com. Talk to you next time.